0: all right yes yeah, just... thank god we thank god for carl and Kristen and their dedication and um you know what they're doing is an extension of us and so we want to come around them and support them and these are folks who've just given their life to the cause of christ and um, just doing some great work so uh, i encourage you after the service stop by say hi to them uh Make them part of your, your, your prayer uh, list of concerns and support them financially if God leads you in that way. But uh, stop by there and, and encourage them. Um, what they, they do requires a life of sacrifice. And in some ways, they're, they wouldn't like me saying this, but they're role models. You know, sold out, so stop by there. My name's Greg Boyd. I'm one of the pastors here at Woodland Hills Church. Really good to see you all this morning. You look marvelous, let me say. Um, if you're visiting for the first time, hello. And if you'd like to find out more about this church and what we believe, if you're kind of in that funky church shopping mode sort of thing, trying to discern God's will about that, uh, stop by at the Hub out in the gathering area and tell them you're visiting and we've got some information that we'd love to give you, a CD and other things like that. Please turn off your cell phones, pagers, iPods, no, any other kind of electronic noise maker. I would really, really appreciate it you would appreciate it too because when it goes off, you'll be very embarrassed So we're trying to save you some humiliation. So turn those off. I appreciate it. And if anyone with you that came with you starts to be a distraction for those around you, uh, feel free to take them back into our happy room which is uh, soundproof or out in the gathering area. Uh, And that would be good for everybody. Uh, Let's see here. I guess this is the only uh, announcement we have. Heroes Gate needs you. Please pray about the possibility of, of just helping out for two months in the children's area. Uh, we really hate to turn people away when we can't take any more kids because we're full. We don't have enough workers. So uh, it really is a service to the broader body of Christ if you could do this. So pray about that, all right? and. Uh, give our children's church running through August and September. That's about it. Otherwise, just read the bulletin. Uh, if this is your spiritual home, as you read that bulletin, pray over the various areas that you see there. Or if you want to go online, you can find out more about what's going on here. We always have a ton of stuff going on, and it's all good. And so uh, feel free to take advantage of those things and pray over those things. Amen. Uh, thanks to uh, Scott and Shauna Bourne, who have filled in the last two weeks. They did just an outstanding job, and. Uh, this is kind of their, their farewell message to us because they have now gone, they felt called to go back to Texas, which is bizarre to me, but they, they felt called to go back and uh, minister in a church there, so we're going to miss them dearly, but uh, I appreciate them filling in. I was in Ictis, uh at, I- at this fellowship called Ichthus Fellowship uh, in England this last week. I go there every once in a while. Roger Forster is the founder of this uh, ministry and still the leader of this ministry, and he's kind of a spiritual father to me. Uh, He's just impacted my life, mainly by his example. I just love this guy, the way he combines uh, super intelligence with a Christ-like lifestyle, and he's just sort of a spiritual dad. So I've been going over there every other year or so. Uh, It's a network of house churches, and they get together for this revival once a year. And then I get to speak at this, this Revive, they call it. And it's just a God-soaked, God-anointed, fun time. I just love it. One of the things that really blessed my heart, and this is what I want to share with you, is because I told the folks I'd share this with you, is um, I was just overwhelmed by the number of people every day who would come up to me and thank me for our podcasting ministry. We call these folks pod they're, 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 they're parishioners, per, per, uh, part of the congregation, but they podcast. And there was just, uh, it was incredible, uh, the number of folks who came up. From all over the place, not even just England, there's a, a couple there, uh, their, their name is the, the Booths. Uh, and there are missionaries in France, and they just kind of, you know, move along, and they've got a congregation of 30, and uh, they said that this, uh, the messages here are just kind of a lifeline to them. Uh, there's a couple in Spain said the same thing. Uh, they're missionaries with a little small congregation, but you know they, they need to be fueled and resourced as well, and this is one of the ways that uh, they get fueled and resourced. There's a guy who came down from Belfast, Ireland. He's not even part of Icthys, but he came down uh, uh, just as telling me thanks for this ministry and what it means to him. And He was saying in his area, he just, there's no church that has kind of the vision of God and the vision of the kingdom and understands the centrality of peace and nonviolence. It just isn't preached there. Um, and so he is, you know, sometimes invites folks to his house and they listen to the messages. And in fact, I, I talked to a number of people who have these like house churches where they just invite people over and hear the message. So they wanted me to pass on, uh, their thanks and gratitude. So from them to you, thanks for supporting this ministry and getting the message out there. It's great. Amen. And they also, they also said they really love it. They really love it when we acknowledge them. Uh, you know, it just kind of makes them feel like they're a part of things. So, Padritioners, we love you. Let's all say this. Padritioners, we love you. You guys are great. Yes. Amen. Some of these folks, some of these folks are just, some of these folks are just heroes. They're just out there laying their life on the line and it's such an honor to be able to speak into their life in, in, in some way. Well, we're in the middle of this series that is part of the, we're studying the book of Colossians and we've sort of just decided to hover on this series that we're calling God's will hunting, because it's all about the will of God. We're looking at what does it mean to follow God's will and things of that sort. Um, We talked about you know how we first have to get God's will for us, uh, about who he wants us to be, who he's made us to be, who he saves us to be. Um, and, And out of that will then come all the particulars about how we're supposed to act and discern his will and what we do. But the who has got to come before the do, right? Everything we do should flow out of our who, our knowledge of who we are. So the do follows the who. Never have the who follow the do. Uh, Otherwise, your your wife will be poo poo. Uh, You just gotta. I'm Doctor Seuss in it all the time up here. So the the who's gotta uh, precede the do. And then when we get to the do, we we talk we talk a little bit about the gentle nudge. Uh, You know, God is he he speaks with this gentle nudge, not a push. So we have to cultivate a capacity to be sensitive to the promptings in our heart and the intuitions that we have and things of that sort. I'll say more about practical steps to uh, take discerning God's will. Uh, a, a different message. I think there's two messages left on this, uh, this one, and then the, then the next one. Uh, I wouldn't believe you if I were you. I wouldn't believe me if I were you, uh, because who knows where this is going to go? But I think right now that there'll be two more messages. So we talked about general knowledge, and then uh, Scott and Shauna talked about walking this out. Uh, you know, how, how, this is a process. Well, this morning I want to I want to speak. Um, well, I'll tell you what I'll speak on here in a little bit. Let's read the passage first, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. This is the verse we've been hovering on. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. That's the phrase, fill you with the knowledge of his will. Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. I want to speak, uh, the of this message, the chairman's plan. Uh how many of you have seen The Adjustment Bureau, That marvelous movie? A few have. You guys really need to check this thing out. Now, it's corny, it's, it's dumb on a lot of levels, uh, but, um, but it, it's theologically uh, interesting. It, it, it's, I think it hits on a very important theological truth, and this is kind of what I'm going to be hovering on here this morning. And whenever Hollywood gets, gets anything right... Uh, I'm, I'm delighted. So I, I love this movie, The, the Adjustment Bureau. I, we'll, we'll be confronting several, what I think are some of the most fundamental, pervasive misunderstandings about God's will that keep us from, from walking in a, the kind of sensitivity that we've been talking about. Uh, and I want to use this movie to do it. So we're going to sh- show a little clip here. Now to set it up. Here's how this movie works. There's the chairman. You never get to see the chairman, of course. But there's this chairman up there. That's kind of the God figure. And then there's this adjustment bureau. Uh, These are sort of angels. As I'm interpreting this movie now, this is all my interpretation, uh, but they they sort of function like overseeing angels, principalities and powers. And their job is to carry out the... or to make sure that uh, things on earth don't go outside of the chairman's plan. But it's not an easy job. Because, and this is the part I think the movie gets right... We're created free we've got freedom and so we can make our own decisions within the parameters of this plan In fact, sometimes uh, we, we can make decisions that start to go outside of the the chairman's plan Every one of our decisions the movie really gets this part really good causes ripple effects that intersect with other people's decisions and the job of the adjustment bureau these overseeing angels is to Kind of anticipate where these ripple effects are going But you, since there's free will involved you can only do it with a certain degree of probability And then they try to head off, you know, things going outside of the plan. It's really quite quite ingenious. So the story revolves around this couple who have fallen madly in love, Elise and David. And uh, unfortunately, it's not part of the chairman's plan that these two people get together. Something about if they get married, it's going to cause ripple effects that are going to be, you know, he just doesn't want them. But we're never told why. But these two people feel like they belong together. And so they, they get together and then these angels come in and they adjust. Okay. They're the adjustment bureau. They, they tweak things and they're trying to pull this couple apart. And they do it for a little while. But then these, this couple finds a way to come together again. Uh, by chance. They, they just sort of meet. So here's a clip that will let you in a little bit on what this movie's about and how it's going to apply to the message this morning. Uh, we have David and Elise. They haven't seen each other for three years because these angels have split them apart, but they find each other. True love always wins out. Hallelujah. They find each other. And uh, you know, now David has already been confronted by the Adjustment Bureau. He's been told about them, but he's not supposed to tell anybody about them. And they said, you can never see that girl again. So when he does, he's kind of paranoid. You'll see in this clip, he's always looking around because he's he's sure these angels are going to show up and try to tear them apart some way again. They have supernatural powers and they can cause things to happen. And you'll see that happening here. Uh, notice in this clip, or, this clip is when they first get together and they're first going out on, on this kind of a date, impromptu date. And the, the the angels are trying to figure out how they can tear them apart. So they're making plans. And as they do, this guy's got a providence book this angel's got a providence book but it, it's, it's a living book it changes as people make decisions and then it, it shows kind of the ripple effects of the decisions we make and uh, so they're always kind of adjusting that she, and he says oh she's going a little bit off of our uh, with the system predicted uh, there's these inflection points which are the red dots on this providence book you'll see them and the red dots those are very bad <laughs> Though that, that's, when the, that, that's when the probability is that this thing's going to go off track and you're going to be in trouble and so you'll see one of the major inflection points here in this, this thing. We pick up this story right as uh, one of the angels is telling the, the head angel with the white hair that David and Elise have gotten together again. Let's, uh, let's watch the clip. You find her? Chance to spot her on the street. We never should have let him meet her in the first place. We followed protocol of a letter. Guy rides the same bus every day for three years. Who does that? Three years later, I'm still cleaning up your mess. <laughs> Let's cut the power at her dance studio. Uh, I'm a dancer. Oh. Oh, not like that, you pervert. I'm in a contemporary ballet company. Uh, no, I think you have the wrong idea about me. No, I think that was the first thing that crossed your mind, actually. you should invite me to one of your performances. Uh, the company is called Cedar Lake, and there is actually a show tomorrow night. If you want. Is that an invitation? No, it's information. Okay, we're covering the girls' artistic director, and we're still working on Charlie Trainer. This whole thing will be over in an hour. Mm. Hi. Hello. Paul, oh, right? How did you remember that? I'm a politician. Her decision tree's diverging from her models. Sister Tilly? Yes. Yeah. Thirty-six hours without context. she will never speak to him again. Look at her file. It's the last thing in the world she'll put up with. Now oh, something's wrong. I'm already seeing inflection points. Okay? Yeah. We're in motion on changing the location of our rehearsal. You have to be born with the right body, like very flexible hips and shoulders and long neck. And you were? No, I was. I was lucky, but, you know, after 15 years of that precision and the training, it's just... That's right. Thank you. It's good. Thank you. I wanted to try something else, just something open ended and human. Maybe. Look. It's, to me, so much more What's this? If they kiss. A kiss? That's all it takes? A real kiss. That happens every possible adjustment, strong enough to break them up and cause ripples over your limit. I think that everything you go through in life should come out in the way that you dance. I haven't found that to be the case with my dancing. <laughs> if they kiss, it will cause ripples over your limit. That's an inflection point, inflection point. I love it, I love it. I, I, I just, it captures what I think is, is an accurate, fairly accurate model of, of divine providence. Um, it, there's flexibility built into this thing. Now, it confronts what is a, the dominant model throughout church history. Um, and it's one that I'm sure many of us have, have uh, to some degree, appropriated. And we talk about it quite a bit here. And I don't need to hammer this point at home too much. Although, since there's always new people, we want to always be kind of coming back and laying this foundation. But here's the thing. Uh, many people, even most people throughout church history, and probably most today, have, a, on some level, an assumption that everything that happens is God's will. That God's will is micro-controlling uh, maybe God doesn't uh, ordain everything that happens, but there's a specific reason why he allows it. And so you have this idea that everything that happens is part of his plan, good or bad. Uh, St. Augustine was really the originator of this this view back in the 4th in the century. He said that uh, the will of omnipotence is never defeated. The will of omnipotence is never defeated. He, unfortunately, had an idea of power as control, a very pagan idea of power. Uh, power means you control and and so if God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, well, then God must control everything. And that view uh, became very, very widespread. It's not a coincidence that that view of power, which I think looks very different than the Calvary view of power, but that view of power came into dominance right when uh, the, the the Emperor Constantine allegedly got converted and then gave started giving all this authority and power to the church. The church became a, a, a very active polit- political enterprise and uh, was given really the power to rule the land. And because Augustine and others were thinking that everything that happens is God's will, right? It can never be thwarted. Well, then if, if the, the secular government is giving us this political power, then that must be God's will. And so they rejoice that, oh, look, at we used to have to be persecuted and suffer and and live a Jesus life, but now we have the power of the sword, the power to enforce our more intelligent and righteous views on on the world. And Christians have had that tendency ever since, and it's been quite catastrophic. They thought that came from God, even though Jesus rejected that same kind of power back in Luke, Luke chapter 4. He sees it as a temptation of the devil. Hey, you can have all the power. Jesus says, nope, my way of doing things... And it's supposed to be the kingdom's way of doing things, yet to this day is to carry out God's will uh, by virtue of the cross. If you want to know what God's omnipotence looks like, you look at the cross. Look at the cross. That's where God flexes his muscle. And he shows us the character of his power, which is the power of love, not dominating, but a love that comes under and serves and wins our heart. Uh, People have applied this this model of of God's providence to everything. I I know a dear lady who uh, was... uh, Her kid was in a basketball game, and they lost the basketball game uh, in overtime because a ref, in her opinion, made a very bad call. And uh, her and the family were quite livid about this. But she consoled the family by telling them that it must not have been God's will. Uh, You know, it just wasn't God's will for us to win. You just reamed out the referee, so which is it? Uh, You know, uh, Who's responsible for this thing? But see, unfortunately, this gets applied to everything. When tragedies happen... Nightmares, things happen, well, that's all part of the plan. A little child gets killed, well, it's all part of the plan. We don't understand the plan. God's ways are not our ways. Providence writes straight with crooked lines. God's still on his throne. God's timing is the right timing. And on and on and on and on. And even sometimes people who don't believe that God is micro-controlling things, we fall into this pattern because we're so used to it. Well, it must not be God's will. And, and now the whole job of Christian life comes to be just trying to accept it. Accept it all. It's kind of fatalistic. want to know what God's will is? In this view, you just look around and see what is happening. I submit to you that the picture of God that's presupposed in that model of providence is is not the picture of God that we find revealed in Jesus Christ. And it's to Jesus Christ we must always look, and to him alone, if we're going to know what God's character really is like. Here's what God really is like. Now, he played other roles at different times, but if you want to know the real heart of God, the real character of God, you look to Calvary. Hebrews 1 makes this so clear, where he says, God has revealed himself in various ways throughout history up till now, but now, finally, he's revealing himself through his own son, who is the exact representation of the Father's essence. In contrast to everything else, here's what God really is like. The model of providence that I, I, I see coming from Calvary, I, I see it confirmed all, throughout Scripture. There's so many other verses that just highlight that God's will is not always undefeated. That God has created human beings and angels free, and that means we have to some degree a ch- uh, the ability to say no to God and to thwart God's will. And so, for example, in Luke 7, it says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees rejected God's purpose for their life, which was to be baptized by John the Baptist. They had the, they had the power to reject what God wanted for them. Apparently, to the, at least in this case, God's omnipotent will was thwarted because God's um, omnipotent will made us Oh, it created us with the ability to make choices. We are genuinely free. We pray the Lord's Prayer. Just to give another verse. Pray the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Now we're praying that God's will will be done. Which means right now it's not being done. Why else pray for it to be done? If everything is already reflective of God's will, the prayer ought to be, Lord, help us to accept your will is being done. Because sometimes it really looks nasty. But if that's your will, we just have to accept it. No, we're to live in a way, kingdom people, we're supposed to live in a way and pray in a way that ushers God's will down here on earth as it is in heaven. Because in heaven, it's not contested. On earth, it is. There's things that obstruct and hinder and thwart the will of God. And so our job is to be a conduit of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. God, of course, takes evil things and uses them, but that doesn't mean that they're all part of his plan. When you look at this world around you, you can't say that everything that happens is God's will. There's a lot of stuff, the ugly stuff, the evil stuff, the nightmare stuff, that's reflective of other wills other than God. Angels and human beings. God will be always involved in that. He'll come to it. He brings a plan to events but he doesn't have a plan for events. See that distinction? The events don't happen. The evil events don't happen because they're part of his plan. But now that they happen, he'll make them part of his plan. And he ingeniously weaves them into a sovereign plan to bring good out of evil. But I encourage you to resist this pattern which is so deeply entrenched in, in, in Western Christianity. This tendency to ascribe everything that happens to God's will. You get fired from your, your, your job. You know... I've known people who said, well, why would God do that? And they get mad at God. Why would, what was God trying to say to me? What did I do wrong? No, that's about the economy. and It's about your boss and about the board. Maybe it's about you didn't do a good job. I don't know what it's about, but I have no reason to think that it's about God pulling the strings to get you fired. Or you got in a motorcycle accident. Somebody told me between services, a motorcycle accident, and the person was thinking, well, maybe this is God's plan to do this, that, or the other thing. Uh, I have no reason to think that. When things happen that are not reflective of the character of God, that's the result of wills other than God. At least, Unless God tells you otherwise, maybe. Sometimes he's, he is bringing about something. And then pray that you, know, you could discern that. But if you don't have a special discernment, no, don't, don't, don't just assume that because something happened, it's, uh, it's reflective of God's will. Here's another variation of this that's even, I think, a little more pervasive, especially in kind of charismatic circles. It's, it's not that God, in this view controls everything but in this view god wants to control everything he's got a will for everything an opinion about everything and our job is to discern what that opinion is um if that first view could be called sort of the omni-controlling view of god because he's all controlling this this view might be called the omni-opinionated view of god because god's got opinions about everything Brother Lawrence, who I love, he's, he's the one who really taught us to practice the presence of God in the 16th century, to always stay aware of God's presence, the most fundamental discipline there is. But sometimes in his writings, I think he fell into this pattern of thinking that every, God has an opinion about everything. And at one point he says, uh, he says, I would not so much as pick up a stick off the ground if I didn't think God commanded it. It's like, don't do anything. Unless, unless you're obeying God in the process. He's got a particular will about everything. And I, I've known people, and I've, I've shared this before, where, who have taken this to the point of, of, of when they go shopping, they're, they're doing intercessory prayer about what kind of cereal they should buy. Is it the... Is it the, 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 the Cheerios or Rice Krispies, what is the Lord? You know, and, and what kind of socks are supposed to wear and, and, and what shirt they should put on. And, and they just kind of live in this consternation about, is this thing I'm doing right now, this particular thing, is, is this what God wants? Or maybe he wants this or maybe he wants this. And it knots people up in a kind of a, a serious fashion. The model of God that's sort of behind this picture, I think, reminds me of, of several parents that I've known. Uh, not, not of course in this congregation or any of, any of our pod but I have known several parents who have this kind of omni-opinionated, uh, you know, attitude towards their children. Well, lady, um, in particular, I'm thinking about I mere mean, poor kids, even as they're growing up. She she tells them what shoes they're supposed to wear, what pants they're supposed to wear, you know, what what they're going to be eating for breakfast, uh, where they she wants them to play, what she wants them to play with. Everything there's kind of. She dominates, she she controls everything. The kid has to, everything they do is supposed to be reflective of the mother's will. Um, I think that that kind of parenting comes out of a, honestly, a a spirit of fear, a fear of freedom. You fear freedom, because freedom is risky. And so you want to overly protect your kids and kind of just always be there. And and, and, when they're young, you have to do that. But see, if you keep on doing that, that's a prescription for disaster. Because there's going to come a time where Johnny is going to explode. Because Johnny, like everybody, was made to be free. To be a person means you make decisions. To be a person means that you own some of your own responsibility. To be a person in the fallen world means that you get to screw up once in a while. That's how you learn. And so parents, as the kids grow up, we've got to release them and and give them an appropriate amount of freedom depending on their age and the level of trust that they've earned. But, but we're created free. If God makes us free, we've got to acknowledge that in one another and acknowledge that in our kids. God, I don't think, is this overbearing mother kind of a figure where he's got a particular opinion about everything. <clears throat> Sometimes he just says, it's up to you. You decide. Be free. Be free. Uh, throughout Scripture, you find God sometimes weighs in on specific things. Sometimes. He sets parameters, and sometimes he weighs in on specific things, but he doesn't always. Even Moses is on the mount, right? And God says, hey, I want you to take off your shoes. This is holy ground. So he's got a specific will there, right? But he, doesn't, he didn't tell Moses to wear his shoes. He didn't tell Moses what staff to bring. He didn't tell Moses what cloak to wear. No, Moses is generally free, but once in a while, God will weigh in with a specific piece of instruction. Jesus, he's our paradigm for God. Look how he operates. Once in a while, he'll weigh in on specific things. He'll say, you know, I want you to go into town, and there you're going to find a donkey. Or I want you to go fishing, and there you'll find a coin. Once in a while, he'll weigh in on specific things. But you don't find him giving all of his disciples a daily planner with a moment-by-moment instruction about what they're supposed to do. No, they're generally free to make their own decisions, but he'll weigh in once in a while. This, I submit to you, is kind of the model of God's providence. He's got specific rules sometimes, But not all the time. He gives us choices. The first thing he says to the folks in the Garden of Eden is, you are free. You are free to eat of all the trees of the Garden. But there's one exception. Don't eat of that tree. But see, you are free. Now, he doesn't tell them which of the trees to eat on. No, Choose among these. That's your choice. You're free. Just stay away from that one. You find this throughout Scripture. Uh, In 1 Chronicles, this is a scene after David had numbered his army, which showed that he had more trust in his army than God wanted. It was against God's law, so now punishment's going to come. And God shows up and speaks to him through this prophet Gad, and he says, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Yeah, all the options suck in this case, but my point still stands. There's a choice that's given them. This doesn't look like this omni-controlling God. You know, It's, it's a God who gives, gives choices. You get to choose among those. Sometimes, in fact, even when God weighs in on a particular matter, if the person pushes back, sometimes that influences God, and God backs off a little bit. He adjusts it. There's flexibility in this. One of my favorite examples is Ezekiel. Ezekiel was one of these prophets in the Old Testament. I feel so sorry for these guys. They had to do these prophetic enactments where they had to like illustrate what was going to come to Israel and Judah if they don't repent. And, and so they, they did some of the most bizarre, bizarre things. It was just kind of role-playing to get a message across. Well, Ezekiel is being given specific instructions about this, this uh, role-play that he's supposed to do, communicating to Israel what's going to happen if they don't repent. They're going to be deported. And so here's what the Lord says. Uh, he says, eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. Ew. The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I drive them. You know, they, 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 were, they usually would use animal dung, animal excrement when it dried up as fuel to cook food. Yummy. Uh, but the, the idea of using human excrement to... Um, uh, you know, as fuel was just gross to them, thankfully. Uh, and it defiled them. It was considered unclean. Can you believe that? Uh, but, but So the Lord says, I want you to do this so you'll, you'll illustrate that this is how you're going to be eating Israelites. If you don't shape up, you're going to be eating food that's been cooked on human poop. <laughs> oh! Then, then Ezekiel said, Not so, o sovereign Lord, I've never defiled myself. It's like, I can't... Uh, I, it's unthinkable. Then the Lord says, very well, I will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human excrement. What a what, wonderful. He, look, he's flexible. It's like, okay, that was pushing it a little too far. I got that. <laughs> he backs off. Yeah, Ezekiel, that was pretty gross. Not anything about it. And see, this does not look like this omni controlling God or even a God who wants to control everything. He's a God who there's flexibility built in the program. And see, that's the wonder of it. This is the thing that the Adjustment Bureau movie, I think, captured very well. God created us free, and I believe like a healthy parent. There's a risk involved in freedom for sure, and God doesn't always like the way that we choose things, the way we use our freedom, but I believe that he delights in the fact that we are free. Why else would he create us that way? He delights like a healthy parent in the novelty and the creativity that that he's infused into us. There's spontaneity there. Uh, We bring something that wasn't there before. With every unique choice we make, uh, we, we bring something new into creation. This is one of the ways that we're, I think, created in his image. We, to a limited degree, create things. And I think he delights in it. That's something that wasn't there before the world was created. There's this novelty and adventure and creativity and artistry. God is at work as a master artist in your life to mold you and shape you. But you're at work in your life. You also are an artist. You paint with every choice you make. You paint with all the stuff that you do. And we don't just paint ourselves. We help paint one another because we influence one another. So God has made us, as it were, co-artists. Alongside of him. He's the master artist. But we really do bring something. We're significant to God. We impact God. We, we add things to creation with the choices that we make. That's why he calls us co-workers. We're, we, we really work alongside of him. And someday we'll be reigning alongside of him. Uh, it, it, there's a delight I think he finds in that. Sometimes, in fact, the, the Bible describes God as being sort of surprised. In some fashion, at the decisions we make. And sometimes disappointed. In the decisions we make, showing that he's not pulling the strings on the decisions we make. There's a genuine freedom that we bring to the table. So I encourage us to always be open to God's will. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're supposed to seek his will on every particular thing that we do. To walk in the Spirit means we cultivate a sensitivity so that when God wants to weigh in on particular things, we can sense it. But that doesn't mean we have to be seeking him on every particular thing. When I was over in London this last week, I went to this ministry fair. Uh, where the kids were you know, having a lot of fun, a lot of games or whatever, and the, the missionaries that were, had tables that were describing what they were doing and, and whatnot. And as I'm walking around, they're just having fun talking to people. Uh, I wasn't seeking God's will about who I should talk to. I just talked randomly to people. And in fact, I, don't, I didn't pray about whether I should go to this ministry fair or not. I just went to the ministry fair. Um, but I was trying to stay aware of God's presence and trying to be open to those nudges that we get once in a while. And I got one. As I'm walking around, I noticed this guy on the other side of this tent, and he sort of stood up, he's standing by himself, and I felt I was supposed to go over there. Now, I I wasn't sure that this was God's will, but I thought it might be, so I acted on it. And I went over and started talking to him, and for the first five minutes or so, I couldn't figure out why... I mean, it must have just been me. Uh, you know, it wasn't God's will because the conversation didn't go anywhere. It was kind of awkward and even a little boring, and it was a little something like maybe it was just me. But then all of a sudden, we were talking about the animal zoo, trying to find something to talk about. And was, they had a little petting zoo there, and we started talking about it. And out of nowhere, he all of a sudden says, "Would you uh, speak into, I, he, speak the Lord's forgiveness into my life about an animal? He had tortured a little animal when he was a kid." And he had a conviction about that, and he wanted you know, me to pray for him and to communicate that God forgives him. So I did. I just prayed forgiveness over him, and it was a moving moment. And the odd thing was, is as I'm praying for him, I begin to feel like I, I need that too. I all of a sudden remembered that at the age of 12, I shot a squirrel with a, a 22 uh, rifle and just for target practice. My dad gave it to me because I used had a BB gun. He said, hey, there's a squirrel. Why don't you, you know, see if you could hit it? And I don't think anyone thought I would, but I did. And I remember going over and looking at this squirrel twitting on the ground and had nuts in its mouth. I know it. <laughs> Isn't that evil? And I just thought, I thought, I thought, man, now his kids are going to starve. I started to cry or, you know, weep a little bit. My brother noticed it and jumped on I me and teased me. But I had never in my life thought of that as sin. But I'm, as I'm praying for him, it strikes me that it's obvious that that's sin. Maybe it doesn't strike you that way, but to needlessly kill one of God's creatures. It's one thing to do it for food, but this is just for the fun of it. That, that I think, was sin. And, and so I asked for forgiveness, and he spoke God's forgiveness into my life and prayed for me. It was a very moving moment, and now I'm quite certain that that nudge really was from God. I didn't seek God's particular will about everything, but you want to be open to God's will about everything. And so as we walk through life, keep, a, keep an ear, you know, cusp to the, the work of the Spirit. But don't obsess. You don't need to obsess on every particular thing that you do. One more, one more particular issue I want to address as we're coming to a close. And this is really widespread. It's a teaching that you shouldn't, at least on important matters, you shouldn't do anything unless God gives you the green light to do it. As you're considering marriage, for example, or a ministry opportunity or a career change or a big financial investment, maybe buying a house or a car, as you wait on God, seek God, but don't act unless you get the green light. I heard this uh, uh, talk from a pastor in Connecticut uh, years ago where he was saying how his ministry was exploding and outgrowing the building they had And so they were praying about this other, you know acquiring some other property and this property opened up and it was perfect and they could afford it And it was real close and etc. etc But he and his elder board as they were praying they didn't feel like god gave them a confirmation And so they waited and prayed and they never got a confirmation. They didn't hear no, but they didn't hear yes So they didn't do anything And eventually the building was sold And this guy was saying this as a way of saying, this is how you should do it. If you don't hear yes, assume no. I knew one young lady, and I think this happens more frequently than we might realize, but she loved this guy, and this guy loved her, and it seemed like a a compatible relationship, and he wanted to marry her. He asked her to, to marry him, and she prayed about it, and she just never got a confirmation, never heard a yes. She didn't hear a no, but she didn't hear a yes. So she waited and waited and waited and waited, and the guy finally moved on. My question is this. Why assume that? Why assume that if you don't hear yes, it must be a no? Um, On what is that based? It seems to me that it reflects a fearful heart. We're afraid of freedom. We're afraid of making a mistake. And and so it's like we want to be certain about everything, and if we don't hear yes, well, then we're just going to play it safe. I submit to you that playing it safe is not the healthy way to go. Uh, On important matters, marriage and house, job, career changes and whatnot, it's very important to seek the Lord's will and do due diligence and talk to others. And I'll say more about practical steps on that uh, in in the next, next sermon on this. But the thing is, time always marches on. Life is a river. It flows. Opportunities always close. To not decide is to make a very important decision. You just let circumstances decide for you. Why assume that we're supposed to default... safety. I submit to you that, that the flow of life is such that we should default to moving forward if it makes sense to move forward. It's like riding a bicycle, isn't it? If you stay still, you fall over. Life's a bicycle. And so the arrangement that I have with God, and I encourage you to put this model on, is this. When there's these matters that I feel I'm supposed to, it makes sense to really go to God on, Not what kind of cereal you're going to get, but marriage or career or ministry opportunities or big financial investments. Seek God's will, do due diligence. But the arrangement I have with God is this. Windows of opportunity close. There's a time where you have got to decide. And so unless God tells me no, if it makes sense to do it, and it's on my heart to do it, I do it. I do it if it makes sense. I always give God the opportunity to say no, but the burden of proof is on him because this makes a lot of sense. It's on my heart to do it. It makes sense to do it. I don't hear God saying no, so I assume yes and go forward with it. Uh, it says in, this in Psalms 37. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Delight. Now that doesn't mean that God turns into a Santa Claus if you like him. <laughs> Everything you your life he's going to give you. I think what it means is that as you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. The desires of your heart will be the ones that he gave you. Why? Because your delight is in him. When we make him the source of our life and, and the, the joy of our life, uh, what's on our heart will be reflective of, of, of his, his priority and his character. So, all other things being equal, if you pray and seek God's will and you're open to him interceding and you've checked it out with others and it makes sense to do something and it's the desire of your heart, you can assume that the reason it's a desire of your heart is because... You delight in the Lord, and he's given you that desire. So do it. If it makes sense to do it, and you want to do it, do it. Unless he says no. St. Augustine said this, and I'll close with this. He, he, uh, he was being pestered by this real anal priest who was uh, always wanted to know the rules about everything, every detail. He was like Brother Lawrence, where should I pick up the stick or not? Is it God's will to pick up the stick? And he, he, he just needed rules about everything and, and fought, felt he was sinning all the time and and, and Whatever. It's driving Augustine crazy. And so at one point, Augustine just said to his brother, he says, Brother, uh, love God and do what you please. Love God and do what you please. And that's really good advice. Love God with all your heart and then do what you please. Because if you're really loving God, what you please is going to be stuff that reflects that you love God. It's going to be within that. Be open to God, giving you specific instructions on stuff. But otherwise, just do as you please. So I encourage us to cultivate hearts that are sensitive to God's nudging. Always be open to God, weighing in on specific stuff. Always live our lives within the divine parameters that he set, you know, the, the reflecting his character and, and, his, and his holiness. But don't obsess on the details of stuff. Uh, enjoy the fact that God's made you free, You're a decision-making human being. That's your personhood, that's your dignity, and God delights in it. Just use it all the time in ways that reflect his will and reflect his character. I, I, I want to pre- I'm going to close here by reading a prayer that someone gave me the last service. Um, as I do, I just want to say that at the end of the service, if you want to come up here and pray with some folks, uh, we'll have a prayer team up here, and, and I encourage you to share whatever is on your heart with them. Whatever you share will be, is, is always confidential. Uh, And so feel free to just pour yourself out here or whatever prayer needs that you may have. And remember the the, uh, Carl uh, and the the Anderbecks out uh, at the the hub, stop by and say hi to them. I close with this prayer. If I could just stand as I close with this prayer. This is from Thomas Merton. It's called Prayer of Abandonment. Just receive it. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I cannot see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the, fact, and the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to love as Christ loves does in fact please you, and I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my pearls alone. In Jesus' name, go forth and build a kingdom. Amen.